Hi, welcome to episode 13 of Global Exchanges, a podcast about foreign exchange markets and related issues. I'm Greg Anderson. In this week's episode, my co-host Stephen Gow and I will be discussing the first half of the year's most shocking financial price move and its implications for FX, both now and for the second half of the year. The title for this episode is Crude Realities for a Foreign Exchange. Hi, I'm Stephen Gallo, a London-based FX strategist. Welcome to Global Exchanges, presented by BMO Capital Markets. Hi, I'm Greg Anderson, a New York-based FX strategist. I'm Stephen's co-host. In each weekly podcast like today's, we discuss our perspectives on the global economy and the foreign exchange market. We also bring in guests from the FX industry and from related financial markets like commodities. We strive to make this show as interactive as possible, so don't hesitate to reach out by going to bmocm.com slash global exchanges. Thanks for joining us. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Well, Greg, here we are. We're basically at the halfway point of 2021. So it's probably a good time to take stock uh, and just look at what we've seen year to date. Uh, Let me tell you what, in my mind, uh, are the key things that stand out. First of all, we had uh, that move in longer term yields, particularly US yields early on in the year. Uh, but that has since re- retraced. It's come back down. When I think about the equity market, equity markets are up a good deal. Uh, we've got in local currency terms, the, the euro stocks up about 15%. The U.S. is up around ten to twelve percent. The MSCI World is up twelve percent. What about you? What What do you think stands out? Before answering with what stands out, let me start with what doesn't stand out. Unfortunately for us, and probably for the vast majority of our listeners, FX does not stand out. We've had the big yield move you mentioned, a decent sized equity move. But in FX, the U.S. dollar is up a boring 1.6%. And in G10 FX, nothing has moved more than 7% against the dollar. Usually on a half year, we get something in G10 that has moved at least 10%. Now let me answer your original question. What stands out even more than the equity and rates moves is the commodity move. The Bloomberg Commodity Index is up 20% year to date. And while that move started with base metals and things like lumber have gotten all the popular press, what really stands out is the move in oil. And just as an example, the Bloomberg Commodity Energy Component has generated a total return of 45% at the half-year point. Yeah, I think you nailed it, Greg. Uh, Oil is basically the star of the show, and it looks to me like it's fast becoming an even bigger star. Here's here's the point I want to make, and then I want to turn it back over to you to, to get a response. When we talk about the global reflation trade, we often talk about the influence that central banks have on asset prices. We're not necessarily talking about goods price inflation or services inflation, although we could be mentioning that. But typically speaking, the reflationary trade or the global reflation trade has to do with the influence that central banks have over asset prices, including sometimes commodities. 
But this move in oil to me seems different. There's a fundamental story here that is acting in support of the oil price, and it looks like it could continue. I mean, would you basically agree with that and also agree with my comments about the how, how oil is different from the reflation trade? I don't know if you can hear me rolling my eyes about the reflation trade. It's not my favorite topic. I would just say this. Yes, global QE has clearly got to be part of the reason why equities and commodities are rising. But I agree with you that it can't explain the uh, quote-unquote excess return of oil. That has got to be something more fundamental, something that ties back to supply and demand rather than what the hot trade is for the speculative herd. Right, Greg. Those are all fair points. So obviously, expectations have been built into the oil market of some type of an increase in production from OPEC plus this week, but perhaps not enough to alleviate the supply-demand imbalance for the rest of the year especially as European demand continues to bounce back, air travel picks up, and we move further into the summer driving season in the US. Of course, we'll see what OPEC plus do on Thursday. But I also, I I guess because of the green agenda, prices are reacting to future constraints on supply too. So, you know, there are elements here of, of a structural move in the price of oil, right? I think you're right, Stephen. I think a lot of the oil move is structural. You mentioned the renewed global emphasis on green energy, and it's noteworthy. Uh, I also think that just the exciting technology of electric vehicles and what they can do is becoming fully realized by markets. This will dampen future investment in oil exploration and production. Right, Greg. Interesting. So do you have any hard numbers on that? Great question, Stephen. I, I think, you know, where you get the best hard data is for the U.S. So in early 2020, the U.S. had demand of 19 to 20 million barrels per day of oil. Its production of oil was 13 million barrels a day, and then production of finished products for export was the equivalent of about 7 million barrels a day. So, uh, you know, the bottom line, the U.S. had excess production of about a half million barrels per day and was a net exporter. In the initial six months of the pandemic, U.S. demand dropped to about 15 million barrels a day, and production... Um, and this is both crude plus product, dropped to about 17 million. So in other words, the excess supply became worse. But over the first half of this year, we've seen that completely flip. U.S. production is still where it was back in December of of 2020. But demand has come back uh, all the way to where it is now 95% of what it was pre-pandemic. So now the balance is that the U.S. has excess demand for crude, of about a million and a half barrels per day. And this means that U.S. needs to go out and buy this from producers in the Middle East and elsewhere. So suddenly, Chinese buyers face competition from U.S. buyers, and that wasn't the case for the two years or so prior to the pandemic. Some really interesting comments you made there, and your last comments suggest to me that there could be even more upward pressure on oil prices from the international picture. That's that's really interesting and, and important to watch, I think. Now, Greg, I just want to swing back and talk about the global reflation trade one more time, even though I know <laughs> that you despise this topic. So based on what you've you've said, the hard data you've provided, if there is a fundamental story that is supportive of crude oil, then in my opinion, we're less likely to see a steep drop 
in crude as we move closer to the point where central banks like the Fed begin to slow the pace of monetary easing. But it seems to me like we're setting up for a really interesting second half of the year if the bullish price action in crude persists, because you're going to have these fairly dovish central bankers effectively playing a game of chicken with the oil price and inflation rates. I really hope they can hold their nerve. But I guess that's more of a, a concern for equity markets than the oil price. Yep. Rising oil prices put dovish central bankers in a tough spot for sure. But Central Banker 101 for that topic teaches that you look through, as Bernanke once put it, increases in inflation caused by oil. I would expect central bankers to generally communicate that's their intention in the second half of the year. So I'm not convinced that a differentiation in central banker reaction functions uh, will create much FX volatility in the second half of the year. But look, it doesn't mean that FX won't get oil-induced volatility. Oil price swings often cause FX volatility without central bankers acting as the middleman. There can be profound impacts on FX flows for countries where oil is either the biggest import or the biggest export. Yeah, Greg. So what I've done is I've taken a cursory look at the FX returns in Q2. And when you look at the G10 space uh, in Q2 to date, you don't really see a massive bifurcation between the performance or the returns of oil importing currencies and oil exporting currencies. I mean, year to date, it's a slightly different picture because the Canadian dollar and also I think Norway, uh, they're amongst the, the best performing G10 currencies. But you know, even as oil has continued to move up in Q2, you, we haven't really seen the gap between oil importing currencies and oil exporting currencies really uh, increase. So I guess there's scope for this to happen in Q3 if we continue to see this bullish price action in oil. Your point about a lack of bifurcation between exporters and importers is an important one. Yes, the uh, CAD-yen cross has moved about 9%, but if markets had fully priced in this oil move, I would think we'd see a similar size move in crosses like, oh, say, uh, Ruble Korea, but it's not there. It seems to me that the FX market has been so surprised by and maybe skeptical of uh, the oil move that it hasn't priced in oil in the 70s, let alone oil higher than the 70s, except in yen anyway, uh, which is the biggest mover in half one in, in FX, uh, down about 7%. And maybe that minus 7% is appropriate, given the fact that oil prices this high flipped Japan's trade surplus into a trade deficit. But why haven't other oil importer currencies reacted to the same extent? Well, funnily enough, Greg, I have the same question. And you know what intrigues me? What intrigues me is that the euro has outperformed the yen in the first half of the year, not by 0.5% or so, but by a pretty large 4%. So euro yen has rallied year to date, including a 1% rally in Q2. Now, oil imports as a share of GDP for Japan are slightly bigger than for the euro area. I think the oil imports for the euro area works out to something like a half a percent of GDP. It's a little bit bigger for Japan, but not miles bigger. So the euro area, yes, is a massive oil importer. And when you just, you know, you add up oil imports for you know the the top 3 or 4 largest 
most industrial euro area economies, it's basically second to China. So I would think that if the oil price does stay around 70 or continues to rally, I would think that euro yen should face uh, a bit more headwind in terms of its ability to, to rally. Come on, Stephen, you're soft peddling with your line about headwinds uh, against a move higher on euro yen. Really, you have a stronger view than that, don't you? All right, fine, Greg, you win. Yeah, I think euro yen at these levels, it doesn't make sense. It should be lower uh, if if the price of crude stays bid and the ECB doesn't react uh, hawkishly. Yes, given what they've been saying and what they've been doing with their monetary policy stance, if, if oil holds up, yeah, I think euro yen should be lower. And Stephen, let me just throw in there for you, Swiss yen and Swedish yen as exchange rates that probably ought to adjust lower if oil prices just stay where they are. Yeah, Greg, I, you know, if, if, if the if euro yen moves lower, it should drag the, the European complex generally down with it. So there would be scope, I think, for Swiss yen and Swedish yen to move lower. And plus, they both have relatively dovish central banks, too, that are guarded uh, against currency appreciation. And I think what we'll do there is we'll wrap this episode up, episode 13 of Global Exchanges. As always, we want to thank our listeners uh, for tuning in. Please join us next time for Global Exchanges, episode 14. Thanks for listening to Global Exchanges. Listen to past episodes and find transcripts at bmocm.com slash global exchanges. We'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. You can send us an email or reach out to us on Bloomberg. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show is produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. 
This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.